Hi, this is Nathan Johnson. Number six in our countdown of the top ten most difficult sermons delivered by Eric Ludi addresses the question of how do we, as Christians, respond to the events unfolding around us in what is quickly becoming a post-Christian or anti-Christian culture. In this sermon, Pastor Eric Ludi reminds us of our position in Christ and gives eight principles of the fearlessly happy believer. If you are concerned for the nation, have been fretting or anxious over current events, or have wondered how to respond, then you need to listen to these eight powerful reminders in this encore edition of the sermon, The Fearlessly Happy. I threw out my message I've, uh, that I had for this morning. I shouldn't say that I threw it out. It probably will be given next week. This morning I woke up, woke up with a burden, uh, an ache in my soul, and in a sense, a need for expression. I don't really like to, at the last minute, change things up. I'm a guy who likes to plan things out, to organize my thoughts, and to speak them intelligibly. And uh, yet, I have a burden this morning that I wanted to share. It's a burden that I have a hunch you share as well. So I feel like it's imperative at this time in history to know how to articulate as a church what the church is to look like, how we are to behave, how we are to live out our Christianity. And so I am going to, with a certain fear and trepidation, enter into this message. It's a bit unchartered. I didn't spend a lot of time. In a matter of, I think, 20 minutes, I put these notes together and, uh, and then shipped them off and told the people that had to respond to them. I said, I don't need to have printed notes this morning. I don't know how they got that to you because this was last minute. At the same time, I'd be usually sending my tweaks, my small little adjustments. I sent an entire new message. But I just want us to be expectant. In fact, let's, let's pray right now just for that readiness of soul and understanding. Father, we are your body. I ask that you would touch our spiritual ears to hear, our spiritual minds to comprehend and understand, our spiritual hearts to be endued with your heart of love. Oh, Lord Jesus, we can't do this without you. You are the guest of honor in this church and in our lives. And may you receive that glory that is due your name. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. The fearlessly happy, a reminder for the church at Ellerslie. If you're a Christian, this is spoken to you. If I could select a different audience even before we started and pray and hope that one day that audience would tune in with a desire to hear the gospel, it would be the homosexual community. And it would be a desire to let them know that we as the Church of Jesus Christ are ready to take the lowest place, we're ready to be tread upon, we're ready to bleed out our lives that they may see the love of Jesus. It's that simple. It's not animosity, it's not anger, it's recognition that they are in need of hope and truth and life and they're looking in the wrong place to find it. Though the homosexual community might look at us as kooks and backwards and upside down and not understanding truly where life comes from, and we are the ones that are on the outs and we are the outdated, the outmoded, I would truly want to say to that audience, our desire is to love you even if you never receive our message. Because the motive that we have isn't to harm, isn't to hurt, it's to help. And if you knew someone that you loved 
was headed towards destruction, you would do whatever it took to stand in the way and make an appeal to their soul. That's what this message is. Father, break our heart for what breaks yours. (laughs) Father, we must love and not curdle with anger. The bait of the enemy is to turn us inward to self-protectiveness, but I pray you turn us outward unto self-expenditure. Please, Lord Jesus, break our heart for what breaks yours. Give us love for those that hate us and revile us and look at us as the problem and don't recognize that the message that we have is the solution. Oh, precious King of Kings, fortify us as your church to be the church as you intend us to be. The current state of affairs here in America. For those of you that are unfamiliar with where America is, America isn't defined by a Supreme Court decision this past week. America had long ago stepped in this direction. We veered off course, not just from being a Christian nation, but we have veered away from being a post-Christian nation. I know that that's the common term today is that we're post-Christian. I would like to inform you and at least begin to bring into your understanding it is not just post-Christian, it is beyond that. The Christian ideology, the Christian manner of living is actually considered the problem and the hindrance in our country, and to expunge it is the agenda, which means those that hold to Christian ideology, to a biblical framework of living that believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that believe that he set up its order and its laws, that when we respect them, there is fruitfulness in life, and that what comes forth is an ever-flowing river of life that changes, that increases, that blesses marriages, that blesses children, that increases and blesses nations, that that ideal, that that notion, that that truth is desired to be expunged from our culture is current daily news right now. It is not something that I want you to fear. In fact, I'm going to say the exact opposite today. I mean, the name of this message is Fearlessly Happy. This is our hour, for this is the hour of God. There's nothing quite like a 9-11 to shake the cobwebs off the church of Jesus Christ. It's funny because people will start praying again. People that know to pray but have stopped praying. People that know the importance of truth but have stopped valuing the truth. Praise God for what happened this week. Not because it's a work of God. However, God's going to use it in our lives. My response isn't fear. I know that's the common one. One of the common trajectories as gay marriage has been instituted as a legal thing at the federal level in our country this past week, which is in direct defiance to that which undergirded our country. It's a direct defiance to every uh, aspect of law in our country, but now it is law. It is law. So to actually appeal to the Constitution anymore, this is part of that. And so, in a sense, this is the precedent that now our nation is built upon, and it is in direct defiance to the Word of God, to the Word of Scripture. But our response isn't one of animosity towards those that architected the law. It's a recognition that this is where the state of our country is at. So whether or not you knew it before this week, 
it was still this way. Nothing changed when the Supreme Court voted that. This is the tenor and this is the atmosphere of our country already, and we've headed in this direction for a long time. The fact that you were being piqued in your concern over it is why I would say praise God. In other words, this is the trajectory not just of secular society but of the church of Jesus Christ. You travel around this country and you're going to see what's called affirming churches, which are churches that say, we welcome you. I know that those hard-lined fundamentalists won't welcome you, but we'll welcome you in. We'll marry you here. And it's important for us to recognize as Christians that to be affirming in the wrong way is death. I'll affirm them as valuable in God's eyes. I'll affirm them as loved and beloved, even by us as the church. However, if you are walking in disobedience to the word of God, it is my job as a pastor to not endorse that behavior, but to come alongside and appeal to your soul with that which will set you free. But it's motivated out of love, not harm. And so as we venture into this message, I want you to know a couple things. This is a message born out of concern, but not for myself. Concern, but not concern for you. This is concern for the lostness of those around us and the fact that we are in a position to do something about that. However, the consequences of us doing something about it might be greater than they were a few days ago. And I love it. As far as I'm concerned, this is the hour for the church. This is the hour where everyone would want to be born into and raised to a full maturity and be ready with what you know. This is the hour that makes for great drama. This is the the hour that makes for the great stories. This is the hour that calls upon the God of the impossible to enter into the situation because many of us have forsaken hope, and that is not allowed. We'll call it foreboding. You guys ever heard of foreboding? It's a form of anxiety, fear, fretting. But what it does is it forecasts future events. And it says, ah, I see what's next. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you thinking in relationship to natural world? Are you thinking in relationship to worst case scenario? Or are you thinking in faith? You know, sometimes things can get really bad. Could you imagine looking up at the cross and going, yep, there goes our Messiah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you reasoning from? Are you reasoning from that which typically comes out of suffering and dying? Or are you thinking resurrection? You see, resurrection flows out of death. And if our country needs to be laid in the ground so that it can come back to life, so be it. You know what? We have a great experiment in this country. And what the Puritans started, what the pilgrims began, you know, all of this foundation is quite extraordinary. It really is. I used to teach American history. It's an amazing reality. And in a sense, we've lost it. We have fully moved away from it. Now we even spurn it and we rewrite history. We revise history so that no one would ever know it. However... Right now, we're starting afresh. We're in a country that needs God. But before we look out those doors and windows, I say we start with right here. You need God. You need the power of God to change you. If you think that you're going to make any difference in this world, but what happens if just this room is ignited by the fire of God and begins to actually live the triumphant Christian life? What happens? You see, foreboding is a form of fortune-telling. When you begin to see, I see what's ahead. Yep, that's what's going to be next. I know how Christians work. 
All the conservative pundits are, you know, and all the legal uh, eagles are saying, yep, this is the trajectory. This is what's happening next. We need to prepare for this. I'm not saying we're not wise about the way we live our lives. But how many of us are looking at the future with faith and hope and recognizing that though Goliath has been boasting for 40 days in the Valley of Elah, hey, isn't, isn't the rightful king on his way, the one after God's own heart? You see, who's thinking that? Who's recognized that this is the fertile soil of opportunity and the glory of God grows out of this? That's what we as a church think like. That's how we pray. We don't pray in fetal position. We, we pray in the seated position in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Most High God with all power and all authority. This is a reminder message, a reminder about our position. We do not cower. Though all the heavenlies seem to be silent, though all the natural world seems to have gathered forces against us, as David would say, I will not fear when even 10,000 surround me with harm and evil intent. Uh, How about you? 10,000 surrounding you? We're struggling with news reports. Let's start being Christians once again. Eight principles of the fearlessly happy believers. So if you've gone through Ellerslie, you're going to recognize these things. This is just going to be a quick overview. I'm not going to necessarily teach on any one of these things. It's just a reminder. It's just a reminder, don't forsake the truth when the lies come in. Truth is truth. The God, the great I am, has spoken it. He cannot lie, and it's true today just as it was last week. We stand on truth. Number one, the principle of especially them. I was at an orphan summit with Leslie. In fact, it's the place we met uh, Mike and Krista eight years ago, eight plus years ago. And there was a speaker that got up that was talking about the plight of the orphan. And there was only like 200 in the room. I mean, this is literally like, it was before the Christian community actually caught the idea that we should be standing for orphans. It's really funny how we, we blank out on some of the most obvious things. And so here we are eight years ago. There's only about 200 from all over the country held at Focus on the Family, hosted by Family Life Today and all these major organizations, like 200 people total. It's just ma and pa Christian from around the country that came in. And so this one speaker gets up in front, and she says, People, we need to begin to treat the orphan as if they are equal with us. And I told Leslie, I said, we need to amend that statement. We need to treat the orphan as if they're more important than us. You see the difference between the two? We think we're doing a great service by saying, you know, orphan, you are just as valuable as I am. Uh, That's not how Christianity works. Christianity takes what's special in God's heart and lofts it above us. And we say, I will bend my knee to serve and wash the feet of you. I'll lay down my life because the value of your life is immense in heaven. So I want to apply that to this current situation, the especially them. Okay, it's, it's not that we need to try and coexist with the homosexual community. It's not that we need to just try and restrain from having anger issues, bitterness, and resentment for what they've done to our country. You see, some of us would say, you know what, we need to be loving. And then someone pipes up, we even need to love the homosexuals. Let's amend that statement. There are special, there are special care point, our special point of affection. We have a special place in our soul for them. 
the very ones that are working harder to destroy Christianity in our generation than any other, how about we stand up and say, especially them. Hey, church, we've been given love. For who? Especially them. Are we willing to have our hearts burdened with what burdens God's? The brand of love that God has shed abroad in our hearts has been made available to us, especially for such as these. These men and women are empty, hurting, lost, and dying. Christ's blood was shed for them. Would we be willing to shed our blood for them as well? You see, I grew up in, a, in the midst of all of this. When I was in elementary school, the way that uh, the homosexual community was treated was despicable, even by the church. It was harsh. It was demeaning, it was destructive, it was hateful, it really was. And it was normal. I was around it all the time. In, in, in elementary school, junior high, you would joke about it. You would hold in contempt and you would mock. And I want you to know that that is equally as wrong as the opposite. You see, in other words, you could go on either pole of being affirming and you know, saying, oh, whatever you want, and then you have the other side, which is just as criminal. How about we just are Jesus Christ? unto them. And we love them just like anyone else who needs Jesus Christ. And especially those that oppose us. Especially those that are conspiring in dark rooms to undermine the very fabric of our marriages and families. Especially them. Number two, the principle of the most infamous sinner. So as, I'll just read you the quote. Now this is going to be a paraphrase because I couldn't find it, but remember this, this message was put together very quickly. So this is William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. So in 10 years, there was like 250,000 people that had come into the Salvation Army. Massive uh, revival was taking place in and through this ministry. It was so powerful. The re- Salvation Army today is very different than the Salvation Army then. Let me just put it that way. When you come into a town, this is William Booth, the, the, the founder, the, the general of the army. When you come into a town, find the most infamous sinner in that community and go after him. His transformation will preach the gospel to the people of that town with greater force and clarity than a thousand sermons. So, we're in a community known as America. What would William Booth tell us? Go after the most infamous sinners. When they give their lives to Jesus, that's going to preach a lot louder and a lot more forcibly than us just having a thousand sermons inside of this building. Let's go after them. Let's love them. Let's, with relentless pursuit, give them the life of Jesus. I recognize what goes through your head right now. They don't want it. Well, you could say that about any lost soul. In other words, everyone would fall into that category. That's how we're naturally dispositioned. We pop out of the womb of our mom and we are not wanting to yield up our life unto our creator. We are born in sin. So therefore, everyone is in that situation. Why would we treat them as if they have a special disease? Any sin has damning dark effects that deaden the soul. It leads to death. There is no difference. The sin that we are dealing with is acute and focused and specialized in our generation to destroy this culture. Yes. But it's still sin. And sin is addressed by nothing else but Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's what we have. So let's heed William Booth. Number three, the principle of boldness in the face of threat. In and throughout Christian history, 
some of the greatest stories of transformation of community and culture and people's individual lives is when believers are bold and they're unashamed of the gospel that they stand for. Now, they do this in love. Mind you, there's, there's ways of being bold and brash that are anything but Christ-like. I'm not a sponsor of any of that. I am interested in us being loving with boldness. We're unashamed of the gospel that we stand for. And so the principle of boldness in the face of threat. So look at Philippians. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, says Paul, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Isn't that an interesting statement? See, Paul is saying that this is the way we function as Christians. We stand boldly for the faith of the gospel, but we are not in any way terrified by our adversaries. Now, there's a reason for this, and Paul's going to follow that statement up because that is a symbol. It's like a spiritual symbol to the one that, you are, that is trying to taunt you. For instance, it's the classic illustration on the playground when the bully would come up to little Eric Ludi. I forgot what year it was, maybe third grade, and he'd shove me, and he'd just stand, stand around and sort of taunt me, and I would be like, and I'd run. And I'd hide behind something, and then he'd chase me, and he'd get his fellows out, and they'd follow me around, Ludi. And so my dad, I came home, and I was just terrified by this. And my dad said, just ignore him. Just ignore him. When he comes up, just act like he's not there. Now, I thought that was a ridiculous solution, but I tried it the next day, and it had an interesting effect. Now, I'm, this is a little different than that, but it's the same premise. In other words, the opposite of what you think is effective when you are not terrified by the enemy, that his whole goal is to get you to fear. By the way, that's where his strength comes in. He has no access to the Christian community except through that avenue of compromise, fear. These are the breach points in our soul. So when we stand unafraid, unashamed, the enemy has nothing. Nothing. And so listen to this. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. It is actually a signal to them of their lostness. You see, when you are not terrified, even though you're supposed to be, I mean, according to all the rule book here, it's like you behave, you treat them this way, they get terrified. However, a Christian isn't. A Christian doesn't follow that rule book. That's just, you know, humanity 101. We, we function after Bible 101. You see, we don't follow the same rule book, and therefore we are not terrified by our adversaries, those that oppose us. And it's actually the signal to their soul. It preaches a sermon to their soul saying, you are lost, they're not. You see, when, when you come at them, they see something supernatural in you and recognize they don't have that in them. Which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. The righteous are bold as a lion. So last time I checked, you know, last time I questioned you on this, what's your position? So if you're in Christ, the Bible says that when you are in Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. So his righteousness, his life is bequeathed to you. So that would mean you are called in scripture, the righteous. So what it says in Proverbs 28 is gives us a foreshadow of the righteous. See, Jesus is the righteous and we could call him capital R righteous. We are the mini made righteous. So we are small R if you want to say that, but we still fit perfectly into the grid in the context of this scripture. So the righteous, or the church at Allersley, are as bold as a lion. See, it's just sort of a fact. It's like, oh yeah, God's saying, yeah, that's the way it is. 
So why aren't you? You see, you have the boldness. God has bequeathed it to us. It's there for the taking. Are you willing to take it? Remember little Mary Slessor and the Jungle Warrior? One of my favorite stories on this exact point was little Mary Slessor. She was a missionary to, to, uh, to Africa in the regions of what is now Nigeria. And she, she's just this little short redheaded thing. And she went where no male missionaries were uh, even going. She defied everything. Even at that time, single female missionaries weren't even allowed to go anywhere. And so the fact that she even made it to the mission field, but then let alone went into territory completely untamed even by the men. And she went into this jungle tribe, and she was living there, didn't speak the language. But, and even, uh, even to help her would lead to, uh, and I think in this situation... It was a little boy who had given her food that was actually having hot oil poured over his body because he aided and abetted this thing, this person, Mary Slessor. And so when she heard about it, she ran out of her hut and came into the middle. There was this whole ceremony, and there was this jungle warrior, one of the leaders there, had all his war paint on, and they had the big thing of oil that was ready to dump on it. And I don't remember if that was this story or if it was a different one. But it it's, it's could be very similar. I might be mixing two stories together. But this part is true. Who the victim was, I'm not sure. If it was a lady or if it was this young boy. But she comes out into the middle and basically stands between the jungle warrior, this massive hulking guy with rippling muscle, face paint on, doing chants, doesn't even speak the language, stands in front of him and the victim. And he just screamed, he yelled, he taunted, and he basically was threatening to pour it on her, and she sat unmoved, would not move out of position, refused to back down. And guess who ended up backing down? It was the jungle warrior. After who knows how long, a half hour of screaming and dancing and threatening her, she would not move out of position, and he shuddered and left. And the whole tribe was so shaken by this because no one had ever, ever, in all their remembrance, ever stood up to one of these men. And this little girl from out of town comes in and did the impossible. And as a result, people wanted to know what power she had. It was the sign of their lostness in that she had something they needed. Number four, the principle of the fearless next step. So when you find yourself in a situation... Like this week, for instance, just as a, an example that I could pull out of uh, the sky, you're in a situation where it would appear that to continue to move forward in the way you have been moving could actually have consequence. See, what we have a tendency to do, of course, because we have an enemy that loves to whisper these things to us, is like, you better start to secure your own life. You better start measuring everything you're doing, every word you're speaking, for if you don't, you're sure to be found out. Because now the laws of the land are against you. You see, I'm not against wisdom. I'm not against us doing things wisely. However, here's what I want to know, want you to know, is that at any juncture of the Christian life, our next step is the same direction that we had yesterday. It's to follow Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if our situation changes. Do we stop sharing the gospel because it becomes illegal in this country to speak of it? What if Christianity was a crime against humanity? And I could say, oh, that's where it's going. Sure. However, what if it was? Does that change anything for us? It's called the fearless next step. You just take the next step. You know what to do. And you already counted the cost, right? You're a Christian. Didn't you already go through this uh, whole gymnastic routine when you first came to the cross, recognizing that you're now dead? And if you're now dead, why would you fear dying again? In other words, there's no old man to care about. 
There's no old self-interest to concern you and to belabor each decision-making process. You now belong to Jesus Christ, and it's his glory that you're after. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. It's just a matter of fact, and it's a result. You see, there is a promise, and that is that God has said, I am your refuge, and I am your strength. What's your position? See, if you're in Christ, then you have a refuge. You see, you are in him. And he is saying, if you are in me, I have given you my strength. And so as a result of that promise, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. There's a therefore that flows out of it. This is the reasoning of a Christian. I won't fear. It's that simple. So just to get you inside the life of Eric Ludi, I've had a little giggle in my soul. Now, I do have a grief. Don't get me wrong. Grief and giggles go hand in hand in the Christian life. However, there's a giggle. That might not be the best term for it, but there's a lightness and a springing upward where I see God awakening the church. I see it. This is what I've been praying for. So why in the world would I complain about what God is doing just because on the secular societal level of things, they're simply following the course that they've already set? What I'm interested in is the church. If we lose a nation but gain a bride out of it, I'm all for it. These little boundary lines that we have that we consider so important are nothing compared to the boundary lines of heaven and hell. That is the boundary line. Those are the two nations we're dealing with. And our desire is to see those lost brought into the kingdom of the dear son. That is what moves us. That is our motive in this earth. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, therefore. Therefore, as a result of this fact, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Just so you can catch this, this is such an extreme example, just in case you could say, well, you don't understand my situation. I I recognize that you didn't fear, but that's not a very big deal. Okay, so what is chosen here is the biggest deal that could ever happen. Mountains or the earth is removed. Could you imagine just sort of standing in the middle of the universe? It's like, oh, no. (laughs) You don't have any more uh, earth. The mountains are carried in the midst of the sea. In other words, this is cataclysmic. This is like the apocalyptic end. I will not fear. Why? Well, God is my refuge and my strength. Why would I? You see, I'm fixed to him, and he's not going anywhere. He's my rock. This is how a Christian reasons And as far as I'm concerned, if we're Christians in this country, it'd be pathetic if we didn't reason this way. David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. So what's the next step? To haste. What is this word? This word is so profound. David hasted. You see, David is against a behemoth. The impossible. this, This Goliath has mocked Israel for 40 days. And now David shows up on the 41st day with his bread and cheese and overhears the barkings and the boastings of this giant. And so David says, can I take him? You see, David was prepared on lion and bear. This is nothing more than a lion. Do you understand what I mean by that? This is training for us as the church. This actually isn't that big of a deal. I recognize the wide-ranging impact upon society. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying for us as a church, our society is already headed in that direction. This is our training. And so how we handle the lion and the bear defines how we handle the Goliath, the D-Day in our soul. This isn't D-Day. 
in our soul. This is boot camp. This is our training so that we can begin to function and reason as Christians. If we can't reason as Christians in this week, then we're going to stink it up in the weeks to come. Now is the time for the reminder for us to be rooted and grounded in that which is true. David hasted. The word in the Hebrew is mahar, which means to sprint. To move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. Uh, whoa? Who does that in a time of danger? You see, are we willing to mahar after these souls? To love even more fiercely and with more resolution? The times are growing dark, yes. All the more reason for us to be moved and invigorated to do something. Number five, the principle of spiritual audacity. Audacity is one of those words that would be, well, uh, good clothing for a little yippy dog coming against a great dame. Okay, and that little yippy dog has audacity. In other words, he doesn't recognize that the odds are not in his favor because he refuses to accept them. He does not look at himself as little. For whatever reason, that little dog has this idea that that Great Dane needs to move. That Great Dane should shudder at his bark. Now, all of us looking at him from the outside, we go, what a ridiculous, stupid little dog. And yet, there's something about audacity that God plugs into the very Christian life. And that is, our job is to take on battles, to fight for truth in a generation where it seems like it is improbable, and inconceivable and utterly impossible. Right now, to save America would be deemed the impossible task. We are headed over a cliff and fast, yes, and I could forebode and I could give all sorts of doom and gloom projections. However, if the church of Jesus is stirred, we could see an awakening at such mighty proportions that the world is altered. The question is, are you willing to be a Christian? Or if you cower in the fetal position in a closet, nothing's going to happen. We'll just fulfill all the natural progression of where this is headed. However, if we as the church of Jesus Christ begin to function as Christians, anything's possible. We, we serve a huge God. What could God do in our generation? Oh, it's exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. That's one thing I know. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the audacity of the twice born. Number six, the principle of rejoicing and thanksgiving. It seems like the opposite time. When you have something, what we could call a victory of darkness against light, that wouldn't be the time when most people are thinking, yeah, that sounds like the perfect thing to do is to rejoice and give thanks. However, it's precisely what we must do. Listen to what it says in 1 Thessalonians. By the way, what's your position? Rejoice. I'm just checking. Rejoice always. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So you already got yourself on the hook. You said you're in Christ. So I'm going to say, well, let me tell you the will of God in Christ concerning you. If you're in Christ, then there's a will for you. It's a will expressed from heaven to you. And that is that you rejoice always. Do you think that there's an exception where, where God's like, well, yeah, except for that one week in June of 2015 in America. I mean, that's that, that we can't rejoice then. 
You see, there's no exception, no little caveat, no little disclaimer in the scriptures on this. It says rejoice always. Then it says in everything give thanks. Well, yeah, everything but for that really dark hour in American history, I think it's in June of 2015 to come. Except for that. I mean, you can't give thanks in that. Whoa, whoa. Oh, whoa, whoa, us selfish Christians and how we think that the world revolves around us. You know that these were written in the times when men and women were being absolutely decimated, cut into pieces, dragged behind chariots, thrown off of tall buildings, beheaded. The guy that wrote this was beheaded for the gospel. Do you think he's like, well, rejoice always, I mean, except for my upcoming beheading. We have faced Nothing. This is a lion. This is a bear which is training us and grooming us as a church so we can stand strong. That's what this is. David didn't tremble in the fetal position when the lion came up and grabbed one of his sheep. He sprinted. He went after these things to say, not on my watch. This is our trust. This is our hour. This is our watch. Let us not curl up into a ball. Let not anxiety and fear have even one talon upon your soul, not even the slightest grip, for you are possessed by the living God, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Number seven, the principle of fertilizer. So if I asked you what you thought of manure, uh, it'd be a fascinating exercise. In fact, I wish I could do that. I wish I, I hadn't asked the question and given you some time to think about it, but I want you to give just your first blush response, not out loud, okay? That's all I need is for you to all start uh, yelling back. (laughs) What is your response to manure? Now, here's a typical response. I don't like it. It stinks. It's just very unsavory. I I don't like being around it. I don't like the fragrance of it. It's just a bad thing overall, okay? It's the type of thing you just want to get rid of. All right. There's two ways of looking at manure, and this is critical in the Christian life. If you can catch this, it changes your entire attitude and framework of how you live. Yes, manure stinks. Yes, manure is a waste product. However, when that manure is placed on your life, even though it wasn't God that put it there, it wasn't God that created it, God is very good at taking that which stinks and turning it into fertilizer in your life. But it depends on how you handle it. If you stick it in a bag and try and stick it in your closet, what's going to happen? Your whole house will stink. You try and cloak this, just deal with it, you get mad at it, I can't believe it gave this to me, and you stew about it, what's going to happen? The stink gets worse. You keep collecting it, stick it into one closet in your room, pretty soon the door doesn't close. It's just a bad, bad thing. However, you take that same manure... That same stuff that you're like, this is disgusting. Yes, it is. It's sin. It's wrong. It's inappropriate. It's not something that you're supposed to dump on someone else. However, when we receive it, and we receive it with the grace and the Spirit of God, with the kindness, with the mercy, with the patience that Jesus Christ received our manure, he will leverage that into a symbol of triumph. And that which was barren in our life actually will begin to grow. Why? Thank you. Thank you, oh manure providers. This is so nice of you to supply me with that which I need for my soul to spring forth in life. It's the principle of fertilizer. 
Fertilizer is converted manure. God converts manure in our life to grow us stronger, healthier, and more vibrant. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And we know that all things work together for good. Well, except for this one vote of the Supreme Court in June of 2015. There's no way that that could work for good. Oh, whoa, whoa. All things means all things. Be expectant. I know it doesn't look good for your Messiah to be scourged, to have a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. How could God get any good out of this? The enemy is vomiting. The enemy is sticking all its waste on Jesus Christ. And yet, all things work together. You see, God is a victor. And any time his body receives that undo, that waste from the world, it is translated, it is converted into a picture of his glory when we receive it properly. You bag it up, you stick it in your closet, that's not what the Bible tells you to do. You stew about it, you get angry, you throw it back at them. Oh, that doesn't work. And it only makes your life stink when you do it wrong. But when you convert it and you plow it in, and you even thank the person who's supplying it. You got any more of that? I mean, this is just really good for my garden. You know, not only shocks them, it's like Richard Wormbrandt in the prison cell when he's threatening, and he's saying, we have your family, we're going to destroy your family, we're going to annihilate you. Prisoner number one that has defied the communist government. What do you have to say for yourself? He's this thin wreck of a man. I forgive you. I don't know what to do with that. When you handle their waste with grace and love and mercy, it will change them, not just you. This is the weaponry of heaven. I know, it looks weak, doesn't it? What kind of weaponry is that? Love? Come on, how's that going to change the world? Have you tried it? Have you tried God's version of love? It turns the world on its head. And finally, number eight, the principle of the always triumphing church. The church always triumphs. When it functions in stride with the Spirit of God, I don't care how dark it looks. I don't care if they're building crosses afresh and pinning us on them. I don't care if our heads are rolling. There's no difference. The church is triumphing. Why? How could I say that? Well, that's just what God says. You see, we are a part of the body of Christ, which has been set in motion by the Spirit of God to gain its end. And it will, in fact, gain its end. Our job is to rest in that fact and not allow news clippings, votes in Washington, D.C. to affect that. You know that there are nations all over this earth that have far worse circumstances than we do right now, and yet they're rejoicing, and the church is thriving, and in the midst of it, I don't know, what, what are some of the, the harshest places on earth, like Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, thriving churches? I mean, mass explosion of Christianity. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you, you can understand with me. Like here, China, it's the persecuted church. To be the house church movement in China, I mean, persecuted most of their leaders have spent a lot of time in prison. A lot of them have died. And yet at the current rate of growth, in 10 years, they'll have more Christians in an illegal church in China than we have Americans here in this country. Uh, let's not feel sorry for them. I think they're feeling sorry for us. 
Can't you just see the church having a worship service and a rejoicing celebration because we had this law finally passed so that all of us as a church are awakened to the reality of where our country is going? You know how many Christians are backing? Christians are backing this vote in Washington, D.C. A lot. This is not just something from secular society. This is us. And if we don't allow the word of God, the spirit of God, to begin to define for us what truth is, we can't stand. Our marriages will fall apart. Our families won't work. You know, you put two men together, and you're not going to have a baby. When we misappropriate the truth of God, life is stalled. When we try, and out of our loving human affection, try and just pat someone on the back, there's no life that will come. It's only death. It's a stoppage of that which breeds life. I'm a proponent of life. I want to fight for life in all of its facets. But to do that, I need to know how as a Christian I am to live in relationship to those who may oppose me. I want us as a church to specialize, and I want us to have a special weight in our soul, a burden and an ache in our soul, a special love, like God gives us an extra dose of it just for those who are in the homosexual community. I want us to love them and love them well, and if any of them ever came into this room, the one thing they would know, even if they disagreed with everything we said, the one thing that they would still know is that we genuinely care about them. I want us to be the true church of Jesus Christ. The true church is not out to destroy. It is out to bring life. Jesus divided the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And he says, the thief has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. If we're doing any of those things, eh, that's not how he works. He says, but I have come that they may have life and that more abundant. So anything that brings life, I'm a fan. Now thanks be unto God which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.